have you been zombified by Toxoplasma gondii? Oh my gosh. I hope not. I got a, there's enough disease going around these days. Have, but you never know, you know, I've had cats, so maybe. How about you? <laughs> well, uh, Dave, how do you feel about the smell of cat pee? Um, I still think it smells gross. So I think that's good, right? If I start being like, ooh, what's that fancy new perfume? <laughs> then uh, then that's trouble, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I don't know if I am or not. I've had cats in my uh-huh. life. I've had four. I don't currently have cats. Um, I'm kind of into dogs right now. Mm. Um, it seems like you haven't been that zombified by it then. It seems like probably, it, should, it should make not. you more pro-cat, right? So... <laughs> Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. I'm your host, Athena Actipus, psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And I'm your co-host, Dave Lundberg-Kenrick, media outreach program manager at ASU and brain and, I don't know, maybe sometimes cat enthusiast. So Yeah. You have mixed feelings about cats or just not a lot of feelings? It depends on the cat, I think. You know, Ah. it's like some cats I really like and then some, no. So, yeah. Um, (laughs) Well, we do love brains. We do, yes. Whether they're infected with Toxoplasma gondii or not. That's right. Toxo also really loves brains, right? Toxo loves brains. Yes, it likes taking over brains. Especially rodent brains. So this is really a wild episode because... It really changes their behavior in a way that's not in their best interest at all. Yeah. This is a, a real-life zombification episode. Like, real biological zombies. Toxoplasma gondii gets into the brains of all sorts of organisms and fucks with them, basically. Yeah. yeah. And their uh, muscles. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. so we're talking to Jessica Brinkworth. Yeah, our guest is the amazing Jessica Brinkworth, who is a combination of an anthropologist, immunologist, and infectious disease expert. So you really couldn't get a better person to talk about Toxoplasma gondii. And and we hear all about not just how Toxo manipulates organisms, but how Toxo actually also can manipulate cells. Yeah, Um, it's really wild. And it's like zombification all the way down. Yeah, it is. It's a, this is another this is another scary episode. I think like this is one where it's it's kind of gross. So. It is a little gross. Yeah, because yeah, it involves poop and pee <laughs> and parasites. So <laughs> yeah, but it's really interesting. I think so. It uh, is, yeah. Hopefully, um, it'll be right up everyone's alley. Yeah. So, uh, Great. Well, let's hear from this week's fresh brain, Jessica Brinkworth. It's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over-analytical. Retracing time to remind myself how Jessica, welcome to Zombified. Thank you. Would you introduce yourself in your own words? I am Jessica Brinkworth. I am an assistant professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and I study the evolution of immune systems. 
Mm, evolution of immune systems. Has cool. that been something you've been interested in for a really long time? Yeah, I think this for me goes back to like childhood. To childhood? <laughs> wow. Yeah, long intrigued by evolution, long intrigued by things that make people really sick. So were you like a morbid child? I think a lot of people might have described me that way. <laughs> I, I like to think of myself as just a very serious child. Ah. Yeah. So, so were, were there like formative experiences that got you into disease and the immune system and its manifestations? Yeah, there are a couple of things. Um, so first, I had untreated asthma most of my very young childhood, oh. which was a real pain in the butt. But I was one of maybe two kids at the time in my class that had like serious asthma that was going like largely untreated. So that made me think a lot about, so why me, no one else in my family has this problem. I had lots of smokers in my extended family. No one else seemed to have this condition. It was like me and a bunch of people who were over the age 80. And that's when I first started thinking a little bit about, okay, so why is this happening? Why do I have so much inflammation? That's how it was always described to me. Uh, and then later in life, when I was in my 20s, I started to lose a large number of relatives to sepsis. Oh. Um, which is pretty common. What is sepsis? So sepsis is a very big response to a very substantial infection that kills the host. Oh, it's sure. the simplest sure. way I can think of, of putting it. The current definition for it is sort of contextualizes the response as being pathological, but I think that that's debatable. So the idea is like you get sick there's some sort of infection and then your body, your immune system has this response to it. Is that the idea? Right. So yeah. And that infection can be any number of things. Like you can get sepsis from malaria. You can develop it from the flu. You can develop it from E. coli. It doesn't, mm. it can be any number of things, but the issue is the severity of the infection is such that this enormous immune response is sparked and that's what that, kills you. Yeah, that's what kills you. Wow. Mm. So it's like your body turning against itself unwittingly because it's like trying to fight something. But Yeah, kind of. I mean, the way that I sort of like to think of it is that almost all the things that are engaged in sepsis are things that you need <laughs> to uh -huh. survive an infection. It's just that the infection itself is so severe that the response becomes big so, and rolling out of control. So when they talk about people going into septic shock, is that septic? Yeah, so that's when you would have like a profound loss of blood pressure and right, which mm -hmm. comes because things leak out. And so it's almost like you would die anyway from the infection. And so your body is like putting everything into it, but then that putting everything into trying to fight it actually can kill you. Right, yeah. yeah. That's wow. always what you're thinking about. Yes. Anyway, so that was another big formative experience. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so I guess I was just always intrigued by infectious diseases specifically. And then I ended up in anthropology. And that was kind of a bummer because I, <laughs> I ended up I ended up in uh, in a program that was very geared towards sociocultural anthropology, so asking questions about cultures and um, and a very traditional one at that uh, during my undergraduate. And so I decided to focus on, so Anthro also has a human evolution side, and I decided, okay, I'm going to do that. And then gradually over time, I realized, well, I could ask these questions about hosts and pathogens and, you know, resolve a lot of my, <laughs> my questions from childhood. 
and uh, and still be in anthropology. So that's so that's how you got to be got a, there. an anthropologist who is essentially like a evolutionary biologist and an infectious disease expert. Yeah, that's that's kind of how it happened. I mean, I'd like to say it was more deliberate than it ended up kind of being because I ended up, started off studying fossils and I took years off to pay off student loans and I landed a government job regulating biologic drugs huh. and that so like vaccines and uh and I worked on really out there thing out there things at the time, which were like gene therapies and phage therapies, like the use of bacterial viruses to kill severe infections. Oh, and, wow! Uh, so I wrote policy on background stuff mainly on that, and then I started my PhD, and that's when I sort of switched over. And I started off in HIV, but then I ended up in a sepsis lab, and that's so. So now, as a professor, tell me yes. what you <laughs> research and. So right now, uh, most of my questions revolve around severe infection. So most of the questions I ask in one way or another are trying to explain why some species will be made severely ill by a particular pathogen and other species will not. So what are the host factors at play and what are the interactions between the pathogen and the host? And then I have a couple of human population questions around that too. So for example, like why do certain people succumb? To sepsis more frequently than than others, but sure. that's a little less exposed, uh, less explored. Okay, yeah. for me anyway. And maybe this is a good time for us to start talking about Toxoplasma yes. gondii. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, when did you start getting interested in Toxo? Well, so, actually, before oh, we get into that, yeah, could we just quickly tell us what is Toxoplasma yeah. gondii? So Toxoplasma gondii is a parasite. It's a single cellular organism, kind of like an amoeba. It looks a little bit like a comma or a really demented piece of candy corn. <laughs> so that's, that's how I like to think about it. It's like sort of like a candy corn that's been squished at the, you know, at the bottom. Uh, and it can infect any nucleated cell. So any cell with a nucleus, it's it can infect, and it has very few cell boundaries and very few species boundaries. But it tends to be carried by uh, cats as the, as the definitive host. So it can sexually reproduce in cats, but it can live in any number of other organisms. It just doesn't sexually reproduce there. It clonally reproduces in, in those organisms. So, and it's the thing, like, where you're not supposed to, like, if you're pregnant, you're not supposed to scoop cat litter? Yeah, Is that yeah. Because right? that, so, you don't want to get that. Right. That's, that's toxic. Yeah. It's okay. the other reason why you want to make sure that you wash all your fruits and vegetables very well and that you cook all of your meat for 20 minutes at at least 180 degrees. Because toxo is in lots of it's in mammals. Lots and lots. It's in every, it would be fair to say that it's probably in every warm-blooded vertebrate minimally. And there's lots of evidence now that it's eggs, the oocysts, are in all kinds of uh, marine life as well. So that's kind of mind blowing, right? Like we thought Toxo is like, you know, human, cat, rodent. So actually maybe can you give us the human cat rodent story of Toxo and then maybe blow, you can blow it up like the whole world after that, but tell us the, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So Toxoplasma gondii. So the very origins of it are in South America about 2 million years ago. And then it gradually spreads probably over the um, Siberian land bridge, 
right? Beringia Lambridge, uh, over into the rest of the uh, world. So Asia, well, not the rest so, of the world, but Asia, Europe, and Africa. And, and it was in cats. It's in cats during this period, very likely. And um, so it's. And how, how do we know that? Like, how, how do we know, know it's in cats? Or, uh, yeah, how do we know, like, that early history, anything about so, it? How do we know it started two million years ago? There's yeah. technically four types of strains of okay. toxoplasma. Um, and they're named type 1, type 2, type 3, very conveniently. And the rest of them are atypical. Okay. These atypical strains appear to be very, very old. And so someone has sat down and collected as many atypical strains as possible and put together with... Uh, basically phylogeography, so literally the evolutionary relationships of these strains across the geography of the world by doing various so genomic it's analyses. It's like 23andMe for toxoplasma. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, okay. So, so that's, that's its origins. But within cats, the relationship is um, it's a transient infection, meaning it's temporary. A cat gets it, it has a fecal-oral route in, in cats, uh, they eat it and they poop it out. It reproduces in the gut and it reproduces sexually. So this is the means by which it can create lots of diversity, right? Lots of genomic diversity because it's able to mate inside the gut of the cat. And then the cat poops it out as oocysts, these little eggs that are super hardy and live on in the environment for years and can't be bleached and are really okay with big shifts in temperature. So... That's and the, the cycle. Rodents come in. And play. rodents come in as an intermediate host. Um, and because they're low to the ground and a frequent prey animal of cats, there's lots of different means by which they can catch it. Um, and then, so they are able to carry it off. Also, the biggest problem with it being in rodents is that they're able to carry it off in all kinds so of other locations. Are the rodents eating the poop? Or they're they just can. getting the eggs because it's they're like around. I mean, anything that those eggs touch hypothetically yeah. then carries it. So if they want to go at a snail that has run through a bunch of oocysts, uh, there it is. Like, so it's on the ground and they're able to get it there. So, okay. so the cats, so the cats poop out these eggs, right? And then right. the eggs just go everywhere, and then rats the consume rats them somehow. Eat the eggs. And then, and then when you said you said that it reproduces sexually in cats, that's it's not like the cats transmit it sexually by having sex with other cats, right? It's like inside the cat, the bacteria. Except it can be right. transmitted sexually, and the only study I've seen that demonstrates that actually is in a rat. Yeah. So well, and it's not a bacterium, right? It's it's so, a it's a no, it's amoeba? a it's like an amoeba. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. what, do you, what do you mean by, with like, in the cats it reproduces sexually? So there so. are sexes of the parasite, and it can... Talk, there's male toxo and female toxo? Yeah, effectively, and so they can mate. They have so does sex that, that, ma that allows it to increase its population? Genomic diversity, so. right. So that, you know, it's... The, the upside of that is that there's mm -hmm. lots of different types of toxo then in case mm -hmm. there's a host that comes up with an adaptation to take one out. There's plenty of other ones mm -hmm. that are around. Um, um, but there's also the toxo effects on the rodents, right, on the prey. It's, yeah. They get into the muscles and the brain. and Yeah, so that's true of all intermediate, more, uh, all intermediate hosts that are warm-blooded. So when an um, intermediate host, so anybody who's not a cat, who's a warm-blooded vertebrate, eats an oocyst or, more, or also a possibility uh, is that they get it from the tissue in some other form of an animal that was infected. And so a lot of this 
transmission that I talked about at the beginning, the two million years worth of moving around, uh, likely also is associated with like carnivory and practices of carnivory among cats and okay. and other animals. Um, so you've got prey. So you have prey, and they're eating these. They're uses, eating these oocysts. and then they're they're going into the tissues of the prey. Right. So same thing comes in, sits uh-huh. in the gut. But the difference between a cat and any one of these other organisms is that uh, it'll breach the gut barrier in an intermediate host. And then it goes off to more or less universally distributes itself across all the tissues of the body, including the central nervous system, which would include the brain. Wait, so you're saying it breaches the gut barrier in an intermediate host. So are cats an intermediate host? No, they are a definitive host. So it doesn't seem to breach those barriers in a cat, but it definitely does it in an intermediate host. So anybody else, it'll bust through the gut and come out. And 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 then it actually does stuff, right? It'll replicate and express genes and stuff. Right. Yeah. So in the gut, it turns into a version. So it comes in maybe as an oocyst or maybe it comes in as part of a, as a version called a radiozoid that's sitting inside like infected tissue. So it comes in like that. It converts uh, eventually to a tachyzoid, which then, it's a Trojan horse style infection. Okay, so it has to get mm-hmm. into another cell. They can't stay outside of cells very long, um, maybe a couple of minutes. So huh. they uh, have to get into another cell, which in most cases appears to be an immune cell of a particular origin. So Really? Yeah. And then that cell, as it tra- transfers around and uh-huh. transits around rather and moves around uh, tissues, will lodge somewhere. And then that. Well, uh, and parasite that, starts to become so, a cyst. So, so the, the idea, so you said a Trojan horse cell. So that means it's like it hides in inside. another. Yeah, it hides inside another cell. And so yeah. that immune cell that it's hiding inside will then take it to some other location. There, this tachyzoid ch- a stage converts to what's called a bradyozoid stage. And so that stage is this, um, it depends on what animal it's in, in a human or in a mouse or a rat, it becomes this very slowly reproducing stage. It just sort of sits in a cell, hiding out and reproducing. And that hiding out and reproducing very slowly thing likely stems from host responses, because there are animals where it gets systemically distributed well, like this, and then it just goes crazy. And, and even some humans will get acute infections with Toxo, right? Yeah. So very yeah. immunocompromised people and uh, severely immunosuppressed mm-hmm. people can develop these yeah. large systemic infections. Yeah. And now in rodents, when they have the toxoplasmic gondii infection and it's in their tissues and in their brain, it actually has effects on their behavior, right? Yeah. So this is really interesting. So in so on the topic of zombies, right? Yeah. It's really it's really great at doing a couple of different types of zombification. So the first is that it can zombify cells straight out. It can make whatever cell it's living in not die. So oh, really? that so dying is a really important antimicrobial mechanism. Uh-huh. Uh, so program sl- uh, our program cell death is really important for controlling infections. And there are plenty of cells that you have whose main jam is that if they eat something that's you know not supposed to be in your body. They die, and they take that thing that they ate down with them. Oh, wow. So there's mm-hmm. there's lots of – that's a really important mechanism. Toxo is really good at manipulating cells to tell them not to do that. 
Wow. Yeah. So that's the first thing. And there's wow. other there's other things that they do too. Oh my god. So I want to tell you about the sell stuff first. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> really go for badly. It. Yeah. Okay. So there's other things that it'll do too. So when it enters um, a cell, so in mice this entry seems to be very deliberate. In humans, there seems to be a role for humans actually trying to take it out, like eating it. So meaning that the immune cells in humans will try to eat the toxo and then it huh. manipulates the cell that way. So it oh. wants to be detected. And then it gets eaten. But in mice, we know that it's very deliberate, that the toxo docks on a cell, on a target cell, and then it just pushes its way in. And when it does this, it creates a sieve around itself and something called a parasitophorous vacuole. That allows it to control what, like, intracellular things come to it. And it allows it to sort of cloak itself to at the same time so that immune factors that are inside the cell can't see it and can't attack it. Um, But very, very quickly, it does get identified and shortly by the host immune system. And then shortly after that, it'll start grabbing like cellular organelles like mitochondria and endoplasmic reticulum and sort of pulling it around (laughs) its vacuole. So inside the cell, the toxo is just like grabbing everything it can? Yeah, the parasitophorous vacuole starts to recruit these other organelles, which is thought to maybe be a mechanism for cloaking. So on top of this other cloaking, it's like literally grabbing stuff from inside the cell and cloaking itself. So it wow. makes like a little disguise. Yeah, a little disguise. <laughs> a little <laughs> Groucho Marx style <laughs> thing with the endoplasmic reticulum. <laughs> yeah, so that that's uh, among the many other things that it does in the cell, that's one of the things that it does. But within hosts, it does alter behavior. So there's been some question about how it does this, but... Um, it's associated with hyperactivity, major alterations in dopamine um, amounts. Like inc- so it seems to interfere with the process of recycling dopamine, and therefore dopamine levels go way, way up. Uh, it's also associated with, like, a loss of fear. No, is this way? This is at the creature level? At like the, creature, the, yeah, the level organism level. level. It's associated with a loss of fear. Um, and that's been measured in a whole bunch of really interesting ways. But so, for example, if you take, there's a, uh, a construct called an elevated plus maze, which I'm sure you guys are in psych, right? So you know more about this than well, I do. Well, you should explain. Yeah. 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 So uh, it, if you were to take two large yardsticks and sort of cross them over so it was an equal cross, and then you elevated that off the ground by a couple of feet, um, and left one uh, yardstick bare and put walls up at the ends of the other yardstick. This would be this elevated maze. So there's a space in the middle, one run, so one yardstick is totally open and the ends of the other two are closed. So what this does is it provides an environment where mice can run into one another in the center and it has a totally open area for mice to run across and then these closed areas where they are more sheltered mice and rats generally don't like to be out in the open they like to run across walls they're prey animals so they don't like to be out like this in animals that are infected they spend a lot more time on that open run um and they'll also spend time cuddling cat fur (laughs) cuddling is probably not the best way to describe it but they'll spend time sitting and hanging out on cat fur when they're infected when they won't otherwise uh and then there's also well, things don't, don't they also like have sexual arousal it's just yeah so there was a paper that suggested that they also get 
kind of excited. <laughs> I smell like cat urine. And there's been a ton of experiments, not a ton, but there's been a number of experiments around like certain types of cats and other types of carnivores. Like, are they more likely to stay away from, say, bobcat urine versus like urine from a mink, which is another formidable uh, mouse predator? And yeah, they are more likely to just hang out in the face of like obvious evidence that there's a cat and there is one paper that suggests that they're also kind of into getting it on in the presence of cat urine. Interesting. So So it's almost like, you know, it, like the toxo is in there, like puppet mastering the rodent to get it eaten so that it gets in the cat. It's got that feel to it, right? Um, So that, I mean, and that's, a really, really nice narrative, and it could very well be true. Uh, but overall, that behavior is also something that would not disagree with just enhanced hyperactivity. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that's, con- that's reasonably consistent. Animals that have this infection show signs of being super hyperactive. Mm-hmm. And humans, also, there's some behavioral effect, right? Oh, my but- goodness, yeah. So the stuff that, that's been associated with humans ranges from everything to, like, more likely to start your own business through to more likely to commit self-harm or be in car accidents, to have auditory disturbances, um, to be disengaged if you hear, uh, like, strange sounds. Huh. So does it seem like there's a... There's good evidence that the fear response stuff is different in humans who are infected with toxo and the risk taking. So it's really kind of tough with humans, right? Because okay. you can't just like infect them. <laughs> you have to you have to go sort of post hoc, and you have to allow for maybe personality things and stuff too. But in mice, there's definitely evidence that there's alterations in anxiety. So sometimes it's increased, sometimes it's decreased, but there are like just stacks of studies that show alterations in like the level of anxiety that a mouse will show given um, a degree of toxo infection. Mm-hmm. And what's your view on like the work that has been done on humans? Are there parts of it that you take more seriously than others or things that you think we should be skeptical about? Yeah, so I take the schizophrenia stuff that's been done pretty seriously so in around 2006-2007 the first series of papers connecting uh, toxoplasmosis during pregnancy to um, diagnosis with schizophrenia in the offspring in adulthood uh, started to come out and I think that there's I think there's a pretty strong connection there Uh, also because it's a preventable infection so one of the reasons why like this should be really important is that no pregnant woman has to have this severe infection, you know, and uh, certainly no offspring has to suffer any downstream consequences from mm-hmm. it, right? It's mm-hmm. a preventable condition. Mm-hmm. So uh, and that's such a severe condition to come, like to have come from that infection, mm-hmm. right? So that stuff is stuff that I think is uh-huh. pretty, I think there's strong evidence for it and I think it's pretty serious. Yeah. And then the other papers you were alluding to about yeah i don't know how i feel about the entrepreneurial spirit thing but i do think that um i do think that the the other ones around major depression and anxiety and so what are those findings so the findings overall just as a lump are that there's a a a statistically significant relationship between testing positive for toxoplasma exposure and these conditions and one of the things we know toxo does is that it messes around with neuroinflammation so inflammation in 
in the central nervous system and also because it messes around with inflammation outside the central nervous system that appears to affect the central nervous system. And these same alterations are strongly associated with all of these conditions. So I think like, it to could me, that's be a strong. byproduct just of the fact that Toxo is messing with the nervous system. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, uh, that would, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Or at, at least confounded by it. So, okay. so essentially, just to clarify one thing, so we can have Toxo in us and then essentially, it's not like a thing like Ebola where we get it and then we die, right? So people can right. live with Toxo for years, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, most people have it and it's asymptomatic. Okay. And what proportion what you think of it is? people have Toxo, like in the U.S. or in the world? or So it varies by region. Okay. The range is like 30 to 90%, depending on where you are. It's about 30% in the U.S. and roughly 30% worldwide. So it's about 3 billion people wow. are estimated to have it. But in France, the... the uh, the percentage is really high. It's like estimated 90% of the population. Wow. And that probably comes from dietary habits. Like, eating all that raw meat? Eating, yeah, eating raw and undercooked meats. It's big on organic farms. So if you're not washing fruits and vegetables that are coming from these locations, it's there. It's definitely uh, in, a, so it's been found in like plankton. It's, what? The oocysts themselves, right, they get washed out to the ocean. So all roads lead to the ocean. Right? Okay. If you have somebody pooping oocysts, I mean, specifically like a cat, pooping uh -huh. oocysts out in the environment, they will eventually go out somewhere out into marine environments. And we've, it's definitely been found in marine snails. It's been found in all kinds of edible fish in the oocyst form. So maybe we can now, like, go back to this bigger picture of, like, you know, where Toxo came from and what its, you know, prevalence now is across life. Yeah. <laughs> so I mentioned those four strains, right? Yeah. So atypical being this really large set of many different strains that are ancient, ancient. ancient. Yeah. And then strain uh, types one, two, and three. And so those types emerge about 10 to 20,000 years ago and likely out of Africa. But it's with the favor of the European favoring of domesticated cats around the 1600s that we start, we think we start to see it spread out. And so uh, that co also coincides with colonization. And so these strains then come back uh -huh. in many, many larger numbers back to the Americas. And is that happening sort of through ships and like cats and rodents on ships what's the yeah. mechanism that we think yeah that's exactly the the mechanism it's coming with animals on ships so cats and rodents so um do i remember correctly that rats and rodents in general just like were a big problem on ships that are like transporting grain and other foods and that they put cats on there to keep the yeah, that's control? more or less the relationship. Okay. But I mean, so rats are great stowaways. The rats have been everywhere a human has been. Uh-huh. Right. Very yeah. intentionally in space. But like otherwise, <laughs> they've literally been everywhere a human has been. So they're they're a 
and house house mice as well. So they're good human companions. Well, not good human companions, but <laughs> yeah, human companions. Mm-hmm. So that's how they move around. And they're also, it's also likely moved around by birds as well. So th- there's all these other factors, right? How do things actually mm, So move. it's not just mammals. Are- no, warm-blooded vertebrates can move it. Um, but then invertebrates can too, because like I said, it shows up in plankton. So one of the ways that it gets into the oceans, some terrible, humans have awful habits. And <laughs> one of them is flushing kitty litter in, down the toilet. So if you're flushing, if you have an indoor outdoor cat, so indoor outdoor cats can pick up and move Toxo around, right? Um, whereas if you have a permanently indoor cat, it may never get a toxoplasma infection. Um, so if you have an indoor outdoor cat and you're flushing your cat feces down the toilet, you're literally sending these oocysts out to the ocean. And so that's a big problem because there's a number of marine mammals that are highly susceptible to. So what happens toxic. when marine mammals get toxic or what are the marine mammals that are most susceptible? I mean, I, I don't even know, like, so what's the, the, how big is this problem? It's, it could be substantial. So um, there's at least eight marine mammal families where it's been identified. It's a leading cause of death for the Californian sea otter, which is an endangered marine mammal. It's knocked off a number of Australian, uh, well, it's knocking off a number of Australian mammals as well. Um, so it's which is not marine, but extinctions. It is, it's, yeah, it's a driving force behind extinctions. The other thing is that it does infect, so we know it infects dolphins, and we find it in often in beach dolphins. So, so that's what I was going to ask, is it like when it's killing them off, because like we're saying with us, it tends to be something where we can have it, but we're asymptomatic, but then it can lead to these other things. With these like sea otters and dolphins, are they... More is symptomatic. It yeah, is yeah. It, are they simply dying? Is it changing their behavior? Well, like, so anybody who has an evolutionary history with cats or the parasite, the way that it tends to manifest is asym- largely asymptomatic, unless you're immunosuppressed or immunocompromised. And it's, but it does do other things. So it can reactivate if you have it and it's been asymptomatic your whole life and then you start to age. Um, it can reactivate and cause, you know, mm-hmm necrotizing infections so infections where there's lots of tissue death Mm. uh and it's also a cause of miscarriage and the total impact of it in humans i don't think is like really truly appreciated terribly well i think even in in like asymptomatic like in quotes infections it's possibly contributing to other things mm. but in animals that don't have this evolutionary relationship then we see necrotizing infections that's really common so and that means that the flesh is lots dying, and lots basically. of tissue death yeah and it's very speedy so for example in a number of south american primates in uh, malagasy so primates so primates from madagascar who have limited exposure to these strains of toxoplasma uh, meaning the type one, two, and three, until very recently, we see these speedy deaths where it's system, like this parasite is system-wide and there's lots of inflammation and lots and lots of tissue death. Uh, And that's also what we kind of see in these marine mammals as well. But again, like this, this is all stuff that's also happening technically below the surface, right? It's really (laughs) hard to get, literally below the surface. It's really hard to get a good grasp on what's happening in oceans, right? But you're seeing beach dolphins and other animals. Yeah. So it's implicated also in, in whales. And then, uh, there's even beached whales have toxo often. Yeah. It has been found in beached whales. So, and then there's also 
odd migration. So we were just talking about this like a couple of days ago, but there's odd migratory patterns for North American deer, for example, that have been associated with toxo infection. So, so like what? What are they doing? They that's just different? don't go to where people expect them to be. They show like behavioral oh. abnormalities. Huh. So, and and the beached whales? Do they think they're like? beaching themselves because of or is it just they're dying and they're getting washed yeah off? it's sort of hard to tell right because you can it's not like anyone's going out and sampling whales uh that are just perfectly healthy and fine if we find dead dolphins in the beach we look at them and they have you know not me right. personally but like they're examined and it's reported when they do and they don't have toxa and it does come up um, so the implication is that that might be playing a role in why they're they're beaching themselves or beaching themselves in groups which is something that Dolphins sometimes oh, do, wow. huh. and they get stuck. But they also hunt by throwing themselves up on the beach. So there's lots of like mm. things that could be at play there. But the toxin is present, which suggests the possibility of abnormal behaviors, given so, all the other stuff that we see in all these other animals. Interesting. So just how prevalent is toxic? Like, how is it more? Are, is like toxo more successful than like? cockroaches or like is there a way to like kind of quantify like just I mean, I how think it successful could be, right? is i mean i think it could be as <laughs> successful as the cockroach or more so because it's literally everywhere it has been found everywhere and it lives for a really long time in the environment in this sort of egg-like stage and a cat can shed like an infected cat can shed like a hundred million of these oocysts so wow. right it's really difficult to get rid of it's like bleach resistant it is tough to get rid of this stuff and it's in the entire food chain as far as we can tell like it shows up in i mean our food chain so meaning like in our commercialized food chain it shows up in animals with you know relative you know high frequency hmm. but then you said it's also in algae oh my goodness it's in plankton yeah so this is really upsetting we should all be deeply upset by this in oocyst form so since all things are washing out to the ocean the long-held model has been that toxoplasma uh, infects warm-blooded vertebrates. And everything else is just out in the environment you guys don't worry about. <laughs> Not don't worry about, but, like, that's yeah. where it is. Uh, but it is in plankton, and it shows up in snails. And it shows up in things where, you know, pinnipeds like seals and animals like that who have limited contact with this thing otherwise... It's the kind of foods that they would say, like, eat uh -huh. various little fish and things like that. So if it's in plankton, it's all it's almost all the way up the marine food chain. And that should be really upsetting. It's not just in our food supply. It's no, in it's like everybody's of, food supply. Right. Which is where yeah. like which is where things diverge for cockroaches and toxo. I would say toxo is uh -huh. way more successful than. Yeah. Than the cockroach. Interesting. So. Okay, so then is it in, but is it in fish and things like that, or is it? In oocyst form. So if they eat it, then it oh. hangs out. And the interesting thing about it is that the last couple of papers I read about this indicated that it hangs out kind of tissue-wide, but in oocysts. So for whatever reason, it's not leaving, you know, so, fish body. So when it's in oocyst form, you said that's like, an, it's like a little, little egg. egg. Yeah. yeah. And so, so then how does it know, okay, now is the time to hatch? Like, how, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that I can fairly say I don't know. I don't work with it in oocyst form. There's a limited number of labs that have been able to do that. 
I, I work with it in tachyzoid form where it, it needs to be inside of a cell. So what are the, like, I, I'm just fascinated by these, are, there's like three different forms or more? Just three? Of, uh, you mean like the toxo? No, yes, no, the. It's like, like the oocyst form, the tachyzoid form. Oh, and the bradyzoid. Yeah, like yeah. if you had to like, you know, describe those forms like as like different kind of monsters or something. Like what kind of <laughs> Okay, oh my goodness. So what kind of monster would you be? So, um, so oocysts, like in gremlins. Remember the movie Gremlins? Yeah, yeah. sure. Right. Yeah. So I can't remember the name of the friendly gremlin. Grem, uh, Gizmo. Yeah, don't feed him after midnight. So you know yeah. how they feed him after midnight? Uh-huh. And he becomes like the spiky gremlin for like three seconds, and then he lays a bunch of eggs. So your oocysts <laughs> are your eggs. <laughs> <laughs> your tachyzoites are your gremlins. And mm-hmm. hypothetically, uh-huh. your bradyzoite is, I'm sorry, Gizmo? Gizmo. Gizmo is yeah. the, the friendly. Which is the friendly looking guy who's not Wait. doing very much, but has all this potential, right? The Bradyzoids aren't friendly per se, but they have potential to like blow up. So wait, so to go back to the to go back to the actual toxo real quick. So it's in an egg, right? And then and that's the oocyst form. Yeah. Is that right? And then it's in the part where it's gotta hide in the cell, and that is which form? Take his and that's the gizmo? Like, that's gizmo where it's kind of cute and it's not No, no, that's the... No, that's, I'm saying that that's your gremlin. That's the gremlin. That's the gremlin. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's oh, okay. the... Granted, it, you know, in okay. Trojan... Yeah. I guess that's that all the gremlins were in a Trojan horse. it was horse. cute where you're sort of like, oh, it looks cute and it hasn't quite... No, no, okay. no. I was thinking more about like... Because I guess it depends on how strongly you feel about gizmo as a cute character. To me, as a <laughs> child, watching that movie, I was like, he's up to no good. Like, sure. he looks nice. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but this idiot's going to feed him because otherwise there's not going to be a movie. I mean, I do want to say in Gizmo's defense, I don't think they ever fed Gizmo after midnight. I think they got Gizmo wet, and then oh, there the were other, other one? yeah, oh, and, then they fed the other and that's one, when you so. made a whole bunch of little then ones. Is that how it worked? Ones, yeah. Right. Okay. So, so yeah. Let's let's not give Gizmo our... too bad of a name. He okay. was all right. All right. So. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, this might not so, be the best. So what about this? <laughs> Here's another movie that I think is okay. very similar: Alien. Right? The creature from Alien starts in an egg. Then it goes inside a person, mm. and then it bursts out of the person, and it runs around sort of wild, doing whatever it likes. That- Except that, I guess it depends on where you are in the cycle, because in the Bradyzoite stage in intermediate hosts with an evolutionary history of the parasite, it kind of sits still, not really slowly replicating. Now like Inside a cell, right? In, inside a cell. Now, it's doing lots of stuff. Like it's able to expressing genes. And yeah, changing the it's cell able to alter any number of things, and yeah, and it's potentially interfering with neurotransmitters. And there's lots of stuff that it's doing, but it's slowly reproducing. So I would say that like your alien stage is so your oocyst is when it's in the body, your tachyzoids when it's thrown. Yeah, I guess if like rather than taking on Sigourney Weaver. It kind of just sat down on a couch and, like, had a beer. Like, that would be the sort of... And so it's causing havoc by the mere fact that it's, like, you know, threatening and uh-huh. it's flipping the television channels and it's changing the environment around it, right? Mm. Drinking all the beer, whatever else. Okay. But that that would be the Bradyzoid stage. So it's like ALF. 
That's not to say that, that, that it's not serious, right? Because it can reactivate if it wanted to get off the, off the couch and just like, I, I can't remember if Alien lays eggs. Do they lay eggs? Oh, the, in the movie Alien? They yeah, do, it's, right? When they find them, they're eggs. And then the thing comes out and goes on their face. And right. Then, and then they think it's cool for a while where they're like, oh, that was weird when it was on your face. And then like, <laughs> Poor out. John Hurt, right? Yeah. Like, no one around him has so any like, sense of urgency about this. So like, well, Wasn't that the strangest that. thing? Let's, go, let's all go have dinner. And then, <laughs> and then it bursts out. And then they're like, uh-oh. So, oh. And I mean, I forgot about that. But there's the, the second movie is the one where she has a little kid friend, right? Yeah, and yeah, she does exactly. the, the, the number one shot in that movie is she kind of cocks her head to the side before she. But there's a scene before she blows up the alien where they're literally among all these eggs, right? That's the oh, like when they're walking through and there's all the people, like they've got all the people. I like, think that's what it is. I have very of... vague memories of those first two movies. Okay, but, um, yeah. In yeah, any case, so... all that to say, <laughs> uh, Brady's weight stage is still very threatening because if you reactivate. And it, that's the thing that's causing all these other disturbances. So it's... So take, taking away movie references for a second, I'm still yeah. a little unclear on the tachyozoid versus the bradyozoid forms, which is which. So the tachyozoid is inside your Trojan horse cell. It's the hatched version of okay. the oocysts. So the oocysts becomes the tachyozoid. And then the tachyozoid goes into one of a number of different immune cells after it crosses, we think this is how it works anyway, after it crosses the gut barrier and then that immune cell drops it off in some other location. And the bradyozoite is this slow reproducing version that lives inside a cyst that it makes inside of a cell. So is it inside of a different cell now? It, it can be, yeah. So the way that it works, say, in brain infection is that it comes in with this through this Trojan horse <laughs> who drops it off, presumably, and or it lights or it lyses out of it. And the first set of cells that Wait, what do you mean by lyses out? Meaning it breaks open. It breaks the okay. cell, sorry. It okay. breaks the cell open and busts out. And then it's got that's a the alien moment. That's yeah. your alien <laughs> moment. That's your John Hurt. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's got a couple of minutes to find another cell. What it tends to do at that point is it'll infect one of two types. So astrocytes, which are the main brain cell you've got, and that could be just like because there's lots of them. Uh -huh. uh, and then the other kind is an immune cell that's in the brain called the microglia. Okay. And so it'll stay in those for a couple of days. And then a few days out from there, it starts to show up in neurons. And the reason why that's important is that neurons are missing a whole bunch of the antimicrobial tactics that just about every other oh, really? cell has. Yeah. So, for example... <laughs> Sorry, but what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> like, why don't neurons have the same antimicrobial... Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff up there that's really different. Um, so... Because they're just like... You know, oh, the rest of the body's got me covered with this blood-brain barrier thing. Right. I don't have to invest in so the antimicrobials. The cheap answer yeah. is that uh, any out-of-control immune response would be really, really bad if it oh, happened so the costs in neurons. So are there are certain things that other cells will employ where, like, it's fine if there's bystander damage in the brain bystander damage i think the notion is that like the, the yeah. hypothesis is that it needs to be limited so certain things so for example cells will make nitric oxide and nitric oxide super reactive just busts up 
pathogens. Uh, uh-huh. Neurons can't do that. And so once inside, a toxo just kind of lives happily in a neuron. Mm, because the brain is like, we don't want to deal with the collateral damage of trying to get rid of something dangerous. So we're just going to Right. Chill. So there's, it, they can't, there's a couple of things about neurons that are really different from other cells. The first is that, um, so other cells that are up there that the microglia, which are an immune cell, can do something called antigen present. So they can, if they're infected or they chop something, they eat something, they can chop it up and they can throw a piece of it up on their cell membrane and send out signals to nearby immune cells, come and take a look at this, do you recognize it, let's kill it. So that's mm-hmm. something that they can do. Yeah. Uh, astrocytes have some other capabilities that are really important antimicrobially too, but neurons don't do any of that stuff. So they can't present. So once something is in there, they can't send out mm. signals to say, "Guys, there's a problem." Oh wow! Um, they as and they don't and they can't kill it. Well, they mm. can't send out that kind of a signal. Mm. And generally speaking, they kind of just sit there. And one of the things that Toxo does really well in neurons is it tells them, "Don't die." Mm. So then they just live on zombied. Like wow! So they're literally zombifying. Neurons, Not just the brain, right. but actually the cells that are right. transmitting the neural signals in the brain. Yeah, and that might be more important than the presence of cysts overall. So, huh. like, in, in the brain specifically, because mm-hmm. there's no real strong correlation between cysts in the brain and any one of the things that we just talked about in terms of behavioral issues. Oh, really? Yeah. In fact, when they have, when they infect mice with strains that can't make cysts, they still get these same behavioral changes. So mm. what they're doing out here outside the brain seems to mm. matter just as much. And, well, and maybe those cysts are just like little nests for the, you know, what is it at that point, the brachiozoid? Oh, the brachiozoid? Yeah. <laughs> and then they like send them out and they get in the neurons. I mean, they, yeah, they could. Once they're in a neuron, they're kind of happy campers compared to all other cell types that are kind of kicking around. Um, yeah, maybe they got this nest and they're like, I really hope that my, you know, brachiozoid offspring go off and find a good neuron and have a good life. And <laughs> Let's get them out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what's more likely is that they're causing low-level inflammation out. And there's this, like, out here and that that's altering stuff. Mean, out here. Out here in the rest of the body, sorry. Versus <laughs> okay. up here, which I'm clearly gesticulating to and <laughs> no one can see. <laughs> sorry. Uh, in, the, in the brain. So, um, so there was an interesting uh, paper that came out in, I want to say, end of April, May, out of Bill Sullivan Jr.'s lab. The author on it's a young doctoral student, Jennifer Martinowitz. Um, and this really, I'm emphasizing that because this is really exceptional work for, for a doctoral student. This is okay. really, really cool. So they took two different strains of mice. Uh, one which tends to have this sort of like low-level inflammatory response to infections. It responds to infections by, let's heal all the wounds, you guys. It's kind of the sort of response that it has. It's called a bob seed mouse. And then a bob bob B-A-L-B-C. Okay. Little white mice, little pink eyes. Okay. So uh, very common lab strain. So if you see pictures of white yeah. mice, odds are that's for this. And then another one, which is also a very common lab strain called a B6 mouse, whose approach is just to blaze everything with a super pro-inflammatory response. If they get infected, they mount these massive inflammatory responses to them, to, okay. to the pathogen. And so these are little itty-bitty black mice, black eyes, kind of aggressive. Um, 
at least in my experience, because I've been bitten by them before. In any case, (laughs) (laughs) so what they did was they infected them with Toxo, and then so many weeks, they gave them this drug that's typically used to uh, help with hypertension called guanabens. And in these bald mice, little white mice, uh, they saw an 80% reduction in cysts. So that's okay. the first time that that's been demonstrated to work. Typically, Why the hypertension meds? So there's a relationship between that drug and the altering of um, a couple of important steps in cell signaling, okay. including the phosphorylization. But it messes around with some... Hypertension. It's just that that mechanism. It's just that that particular action interferes with toxo. Okay, exactly. Right. So, uh, and anyway, so they thought, well, let's give this a shot, and so they saw an eighty percent reduction in tissue cysts in these little white mice. That that don't have a crazy immune response. They don't have this outsized immune response, and so, and they saw a loss of hyperactivity. And they saw a drop in neuroinflammation, and they thought, this is awesome. So yeah. then Jennifer took uh, these B6 mice. The little black right. ones? Yeah. Okay. Who were now infected uh-huh. at so many weeks, gave yeah. them the drug. And what happened in these, high, in these like, pro-inflammatory mice was that the cyst number went up. It went, what? Yeah, it, like, significantly went up. So they had way more cysts afterwards. But loss of hyperactivity... Huh. Loss of neuroinflammation. Oh. Yeah. Huh. Weird, right? Yeah. So the take-home uh-huh. is that, uh, A, it's possibly a drug that could be used to clear chronic infection, maybe, which currently there's no drug that can yeah. do that. Uh, but it's going to depend on host factors, yeah. Whether what kind of yeah. Well, I don't know. To me, it really seems like you know the cysts might just be a source for the agents that are then like going out right. and doing the action. And those agents that go out and do the action, they might be a little more vulnerable to yeah. you know host immune system or you know right, other yeah. antimicrobial things. But maybe the nests are like fortresses and like. Yeah, 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 exactly. What I thought was sort of strange about it was that in this B6 mouse, right, where they still have a huge number of cysts, we see the loss of all this behavioral cysts. Right, so maybe... the connection between, like, the number of cysts you have is maybe, like, maybe that's not relevant. Maybe you only need a couple. Because, yeah, maybe it's an issue of, like, who's out and whether things are being reactivated at this low level. Yeah. So I'm not sure that anybody's looked at that. I wonder if maybe they even are, like, is it possible for them to, like, re-aggregate? Like, for them to be out there and then, like, come together to, like, protect. Oh, gosh, wouldn't that be? I, I mean, I guess possibly, but the way that I understand, just based on my own cellular yeah. infections, the way I understand it is that they find something, they go in. They Because they can't they be yeah. out for very yeah. long. It's a couple of minutes. Hmm. So, um, well, either way, it's interesting. Right? It's kind of neat, yeah. right? So, possible yeah. treatment option, and it, it kind of does away with this notion that, like, cysts as a structure are hyper important for right. the way that this is like, it might just be another intermediary right exactly and there's another paper that came out i want to say last year or the year before that looked at strains uh and this neophobia so the loss of this fear loss in mice and all the the other things that we were talking about mm-hmm. around hyperactivity and, and that kind of thing and they found these changes to be permanent 
So mm-hmm. if you clear them, if you gave them an acute infection, so you can clear infections in the first couple of days by giving any number of drugs. If you cleared them of that infection, didn't matter. The behavioral changes stayed. Really? Yeah. So it's a in that paper, it suggests, and I think the other paper suggests this too, that there's just some sort of fundamental disturbance in inflammatory milieu, like the inflammatory huh. milieu, uh-huh. that then is potentially permanently altered. So they like and just perpetuating, hijack something, and then recalibrate yeah. it, and then we're just stuck with it. And that's it. Yeah. And that that could be strain specific too, but yeah. Huh. So I have a question going to sort of the behavior change and things like that, right? Because we talked about how with mice, it sort of makes them less afraid of cats. And these are things that seem like they would help Toxo get passed along. Does it, is, does it seem like they're deliberately changing the behavior of the host? And when you say deliberately, it, you don't actually mean like consciously or intentionally, just that they made it evolve, have evolved, have evolved to, do, to that. do this? Yeah, like that. But I, I understand that. Yeah, well, yeah. Like, are they programmed to specifically seek out certain cells? Or are they programmed? You know what I mean? Like to to somehow, yeah. or is it just so they don't luck, favor? Yeah, they don't favor any particular cell type, and there's no area in the brain that they typically aggregate. It's completely random, as far as anyone can tell. So okay. they don't just like hang out in the hippocampus. So they don't hang out like in the cerebellum mm-hmm. specifically. They hang out anywhere. Okay. Um, but that said, like I said, it doesn't seem to matter whether the sister in the brain or not. It can still lead to these behavioral changes. So insofar that it's an adaptation that like benefits the sexual reproduce, uh, reproduction and pr- ensures like continual um, diversity in the genome. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, that. I think that that's a circle that, that probably really does exist. I think it is beneficial. But... I think it's also beneficial generally. Like, if you're a mouse, not just cats are going to eat you, right? right. And, and so, you know, if you're hanging out in bryozoite form somewhere in the tissue of that mouse, you're still going to, as a toxo, be able to enter an intermediate host's gut and move on into their tissues. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that brings up just this much bigger picture question, which is, so my sense from, like, my surface reading of the toxo literature is that the kind of conventional wisdom about it or thinking is, you know, the, the cat rodent, um, you know, life cycle is like the one that is like, you know, how like Toxo evolved to have the brain manipulating effects that it does and everything else, all the other effects on, warm-blooded vertebrates, including us, those are all just byproducts of the fact that Toxo evolved this thing with, you know, rodents and yeah. cats. Do you buy that, or do you think that there's I ha- more? I think that it might be more complicated than that. I think that's definitely a side of it. I think that it might be more complicated. But one of the reasons why that's pointed to repeatedly is the relationship is because mice have a ton of adaptations that no one else has to it. Mm. And they're clearly like a frequent target of this infection. So, I mean, so for example, um, there's a type of enzyme that we, uh, that mammals have called an immune related G, I'm not going to give you the whole name because it's enormous, but uh, immune related GPT or GTPA, uh, dang it, <laughs> GTPAs. So, this is an enzyme that breaks up guanosine triphosphate. So, that's a nucleotide. Um, there's a bunch of reasons why this is important, but specifically in immune function, it uh, 
is engaged in targeting a number of pathogens, Toxo, one of them, and it can, in a mouse anyway, squeeze Toxo out of its vacuole and oh. shove it out into the cytoplasm hmm. of a cell where then the cytoplasm factors kill it. So, and then the cell will undergo this sort of programmed cell death and mm-hmm. it's free to die and no longer be zombified. But the, uh, and so mice, and it varies by lab strain, and it's becoming very obvious that wild mice vary in the number of these genes that they have to have at least 21. And in some cases, like the B6 mice, I was just talking about, they have like 23 of these things. And oh. humans only have one. Mm-hmm. And so they only have one gene for this, and it's largely expressed in the testes. Mm-hmm. So there's this. And they do other things, but this is something that specifically targets toxic. So there's stuff that pairs with it that looks an awful lot like that. Like, but the way yeah, that there's been a history of selection this, on the counter adaptation, right? Basically. That this cycle yeah. of cat and literally cat and mouse, right? Exactly, is very real and exists. I guess that from mm-hmm. my perspective, is that I think that it might also be additionally more complex than that mm-hmm. because it, it's always had these other intermediate hosts potentially as well. Yeah. So, yeah. But mm-hmm. mice being a target of cats and mice being low to the ground and mice liking to forage and get into dark little spaces. Um, mm-hmm. Cats do things like they like to poop in the shade. Mm. So it's like, I don't even like cats. So it's just weird that I know this. But yes, <laughs> they like to do things like they'll poop in the shade and they'll bury their poop. And these are like dark little corners where rodents mm-hmm. like to be. Right. So it, it, there's this closeness between the environmental connection and then also the fact that they're cat prey. So there's, yeah. Interesting. Well, so when we kind of get towards the end of the episode, we like to ask this question about, um, well, in this case, the the tox apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, you know, if we like look at what toxo can do in this sort of like multi-level zombification that it can do to like cells and to organisms and different organisms, um, yeah, if we kind of follow this to its logical conclusion, either like you enhance Toxo's capabilities a little bit or you just say, okay, well, given what we know about what Toxo can do now, like, where is this going? Oh, my God. It's like the perfect parasite. You can, like, why would you mess with it? <laughs> it? It knows no cell boundaries. It apparently knows very few species boundaries. So uh, where is it going? So we're in the middle of it right now. I mean, we do so many bad things, humans, and one of, (laughs) environmentally speaking, one of the terrible things that we've done is like domesticated cats. And worse, we've domesticated cats and we brought them out to other places. And even worse than that, we have outdoor cats and we have tons of feral cats, right? So, so I just have to ask, yeah. like, do you hate cats? No, I just, I <laughs> don't like them. Are you a them. cat hater? I, it's not, so, like, I can objectively look at a cat and say, like, oh, that's a pretty animal. Or, you know, like, I uh-huh. mean, kittens look cute and everything. Do you, you like know? to pet them? No, I don't like to touch them. <laughs> they make had, me sneeze. Do you think if you had Toxo, you'd be more likely to want to pet them? Like the little mice? Oh, I mean. Do you have Toxo? Do you know? I've you, never tested myself for it. Are but you afraid to find yeah, out? I really don't want to know. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. It's well. like, don't ask questions you don't want the answers to. Um, yeah, but I don't. And this stems from a formative childhood experience of having a sandbox that the cat next door used to come over and poop in. Ooh, oh, gosh. And that's it. Man. So it's this like one yeah. big litter box. This yeah. really is the full explanation for why you are where you are today. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. It's like this moment of realizing there is cat poop in my 
my sandbox for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I appreciate... And so now you have, a, a like, a career where there's always cat poop in your sandbox. Like, it's you're true. always studying I will always the cat be, poop, so... I will always be yeah. thinking about the cat poop, it's yeah. true. Yeah, so, no, I appreciate that other people like them, and I have dear friends that I love dearly that love them. Some um, of your best friends love cats, Some of my best friends love cats, <laughs> it's true. I have a, a friend... Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Missy Johnson in NYC who goes out and like in the dark of the night. So her spare time activity is going out to like junkyards and stuff in New York and pulling feral cats out and treating them and sterilizing them and sending them back out to be feral cats. Wow. Uh, which involves lots of cat wrestling and lots of getting up into other people's cars and like all kinds <laughs> of like <laughs> Right. She's, she, and she loves cats. I just, you know, I appreciate, and I, I love Missy, so this is fine, but I just can't get into it. That said, that work is very admirable, and I'm very happy for anyone to go and do that. So. Yeah. All right. So the talks apocalypse. So we're, like, like you know, if if you just, like, give Toxo a little, like, superhero bump, so, like, the things that it can do, you just, like, let it, like, you give it a little more power so it can do that a little more or a, a little, little bit, bit better. Right. Where, where are we? So, um... So there is one study, actually, I should have mentioned this earlier. There's one study that suggests that it might lead to cognitive improvement in humans. Really? <laughs> so I, now I'm just thinking of other bad movies I've never seen <laughs> with that dude from that movie with Lady Gaga. But in reality, oh, it was sure, like, we, sure. right. Yeah. Okay, what's his name? Brad, yeah, Bradley, Bradley Cooper, Cooper, right? So he was in that movie where he was like, my mind is so amazing movie. Maybe? That's I think, it. Yeah, okay. So. so, I mean, if you were going to boost it, then... Then I guess could do. Wait, so the tox apocalypse is actually us getting smarter? I thought it was like ecological destruction. Yeah, no, the tox apocalypse is definitely e <laughs> okay. ecological destruction. But I'm just saying, if there was a benefit, if we're going to boost it. So I was trying to get a positive spin. Like, okay. I, total maybe, world well, annihilation. Yeah. Ecological destruction, and we're smart, and we're starting our own businesses. Yeah, we're right? starting our own so businesses, exactly. And lots of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Lots of great cat videos on the internet. That's true. Too. Yeah, so. that's true, right? Yeah, there you go. Late fees, capital. <laughs> so, so what can we do to prevent this very bizarre tox apocalypse? Well, okay, so if, if we want to, if there's an incentive to do something about it, stop freaking flushing your cat feces down the toilet. Okay. So if I, if I were going to sit back and do things, okay, so the very first thing I would say is that, all right, so for human infections, Wash fruit and vegetables. You want to make sure you have access to clean water. Make sure that everybody has access to clean water. And when you say wash, what do you mean? Like thoroughly mm. wash. And with a cleaner no. well, that has so detergent or just with water? Yeah, I don't. Bleach, so so. <laughs> <laughs> at the Duke Lemur Center where they used to have these outbreaks, um, not infrequently in the early 1990s, they started bleaching the food. So they would put it through really? sort of a so light they... bleach wash. Wow. And then they stopped. So I'm not suggesting you bleach your food. There's lots okay. of downsides sounds, to bleaching your food. Yeah. But uh, but a thorough so like I wash this is gonna I'm gonna reveal myself as being kind of eccentric now. I <laughs> I wash yeah, don't worry, I think that we're already established. All these people dying and this cat pooped in my sandbox. <laughs> um right. So, uh, 
Okay, what was I? Yes. Okay, so I like I'll wash my fruits and vegetables with dish soap and things. It's a little bit really? harder to do this with leafy greens, but I'll do that. Yeah. Then doesn't it taste kind of gross? Well, dish soap is designed to be rinsed off, right? The, so, the it's so the flavor's yeah. not there. You might smell rosy lemons or whatever the smell <laughs> is, but like when you rinse the plate, it's not there anymore. Really? So, 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 it. so I'll do that. I'm not sure how effective it is, but it makes me feel better, which is the reason okay. why I do it. I don't do that with leafy greens i kind of just give them a good thorough mm -hmm. repeated washing uh -huh. but most people are probably also picking it up in in meat right so um so i don't so don't eat undercooked meat 180 degrees for 20 minutes is pork really a particularly bad one so for my understanding is that organic farms really struggle with this and most of the research has been done in sheep and one of the reasons for that is that it causes it takes a it really nails the sheep industry because it it causes a lot of spontaneous abortion so it has this big economic oh, effect so in that you don't have as many sheep because you have toxo on these farms so um, i'm unclear about pork but i would say generally speaking you don't want it to be pink and i know that that's a bummer but mm -hmm. that's the state of affairs and then that would also apply to sushi so i actually don't eat fish sushi anymore for overfishing reasons but um but a really good reason not to is that it very likely also has this and also sushi scams man lots of counterfeit sushi out there is there yeah so uh just <laughs> what? As, a side, as a side note for your show notes uh yes so um there are different so there's cheaper fish and in some cases fish that actually aren't great to eat at all they get swapped in and out for common types because tuna yeah. is actually kind of hard to find really yeah there's so there's well-known tuna shortages and things at times um and so these other so the questionable fish stuff, get into the mix you know chopped up in your spicy tuna roll might not be tuna yeah yeah especially if you're eating it like that right where you don't get, <laughs> don't get a visual id on wow. it um so yeah um yellowtail and uh red snapper often get like mm. switched out for uh fish that I can't remember the name of it, but it gives you the runs. There's, uh, yeah, so it makes people really ill. Uh, there's a study that came out in the University of Toronto last year where the it was a class assignment. The teacher just told everyone to go out to a different sushi restaurant, bring home one piece of sushi, and then they would do like genetic testing and see if it lines up. <laughs> and none of the fish were identified as the fish that they were what? sold as being. Yeah. So wow. all okay. so. That aside, the, from a toxo perspective, uh, they can carry oocysts, so that's another reason. Okay. Yeah, it turns so. out in that genetic study, they actually discovered all those fish were toxo. Right, exactly. So. That's it. It was just one big toxo. Uh, so those are things that can be done. And then, I mean, honestly, indoor-outdoor cats are the, are the primary nuisance. So feral cats and indoor-outdoor cats keep. If you're going to have a cat, you insist on having a cat, <laughs> keep it indoors. Okay, and, and then, then but then don't flush. It's don't don't teach it to poop in the toilet. Yeah, I mean, even that's though it might just, impress your friends. Like who else knows what else <laughs> they've got? Yeah, that too. Find yeah, new ways. Get better friends. <laughs> <laughs> and hand washing is super. Like to all of this, hand washing is super super key. So yeah, if they're not outdoors, um, if you've adopted a cat, then yeah, don't have them pooping down the toilet. Mm -hmm. If they if you're getting like a kitten that's from a long running indoor family has never been out, then odds are they're not mm -hmm. going to acquire it unless you're feeding them raw meat. Okay. And so. did we already like completely fuck up our ecosystem with the Toxo thing, or is oh this yeah, salvageable? no, it's done. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so for now, it's an issue. Like, up, folks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's totally, it's totally done. So now it's an issue of trying to figure out what it's actually doing, right? We have this, so it's a neglected tropical disease. There are lots of people that are studying it, but it's not prioritized the way that a lot of other uh, pathogens have been. So there's real reasons to go out and try to get a sense of like, where is this? You know, let's do some more environmental surveys. You know, if it's happening in dolphins, well, there's lots of dolphins out in the world that people track. Let's look and see, like, what can what information can we get off of animals that we actually have you know, possible biological samples from and things like that. You know, if it's out in deer, like somebody could survey mm -hmm. the wild deer population, not the whole wild deer population, but there's sure. there's lots mm -hmm. of other things that can be done. Like, let's figure out what's what's the overall effect of this. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's kind of worth considering is that given that these oocysts have, so with climate change, lots of things are changing. Migratory patterns of animals are changing anyway. So you should expect that there's going to be change in the pathogens that they carry and where they're going to go. Uh, and then on top of that, these oocysts are super environmentally hardy. So with the melting of, of ice caps and things like that, they can, you know, Toxo can more substantially, can potentially substantially live longer in regions where it would have died because of severe cold. Oh, so wow. there's things like that to think about. Like if it's in plankton, then like that's the world's mm. blue whale population, right? Like there's things that we don't have eyes on that would be important to get, you know, a sense of what's going on. Okay, I ask one last question. So this like rats and cats, you know, they've sort of, Co-evolved with Toxo, yeah, co-evolved yeah. so that they don't die off. Is that likely going to happen, or is it like I guess maybe maybe for some and not for you others? You mean like, like are we going to get to the point where deer like or dolphins other organisms are, they are co-evolving with Toxo? I mean, to, I mean hypothetically, hopefully. sure, uh, but you're I, you're going to see extinctions. We already know that there are animals that are being driven to extinction by this parasite, wow. right? So there's certain animals that maybe. So I guess it depends. It could be like the Dutch elm disease thing, right? Where like now we have all these elms that can resist it. But uh -huh. everyone thought that all of these elms were going to die off. And certainly plenty of elms are gone. So, so yeah. it, it's a major change in the landscape no matter what. So it would be better to try to limit the effects of it. So, I mean, it sounds like it can both just have selective effects on like a particular species in terms of selecting for individuals that maybe can tolerate it better or are better at right, clearing yeah. it. But then it also has these potential implications for actually just causing extinction. So really important to know more about it for conservation of right. lots of different species. And it should be approached as a one health issue, right? If we are looking for drugs, so for example, one of the... the, the can you say what a one health issue is? So a one yeah. health issue would be an issue where animal and human health intersects. So, um, so for example, I mean, there's a lot of them, but HIV, hypothetically, immunodeficiency viruses are mm -hmm. hypothetically could be, it's not a great example. Staphylococcus aureus is a great example. Staphylococcus aureus has been with humans since the Neolithic period during the dawn of agriculture, and we gave it to cows who now suffer from staph-related mastitis and can, you know, so that's a one health issue. Resolving mastitis infections in cows and, you know, keeping staph from killing humans. Mm -hmm. And any zoonotic diseases, right? And Those are yeah. one health issues. No, so. exactly. Yeah. So, um, so toxo is a one health issue. 
And if we look at who's being most affected by this, it's the most vulnerable people in our society, right? It's it's neonates, like itty-bitty babies, and often itty-bitty babies that are also additionally immunocompromised, so like HIV itty-bitty babies, pregnant women, the elderly, uh, and it's it's a disease also that we can, you know, you can see in like poverty, severe poverty has an effect on, you know, immunosuppression. There's lots of reasons to think that it's affecting lots of people that we don't know all that much about, or not all that much about, but the, affecting lots of people, and we don't know all that much about it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it's, there's that, and we know that we have these animals that succumb to it quickly. So wouldn't it be great if we could find chronic and acute treatments that are more effective in humans that also work in these other animals or study these other animals and also help humans. So that's kind of the perspective that I think about it from. Great. Yeah. Well, Jessica, thank you so much (laughs) for sharing your brains with us. (laughs) Really amazing. Yeah, this was No, this was a lot of fun. And if the says that we're crazy we don't need nobody anyhow but if you don't want to fall in love you better tell me right now and if the whole world says that we're crazy we can burn this mother Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And we would like to thank everyone who helped make this episode possible, including the psychology department at ASU. The Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and the President's Office at ASU. The Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics of Zombies. And the Zombie Apocalypse. That's right. Uh, (laughs) We made that last part up. That's true. We did. As we always do. Yes. Um, and uh, <laughs> hopefully that's ethical. Um, and uh, also the Z team. Yes. We have an amazing group of undergraduates and other researchers who help us with so many aspects of making this podcast happen, including the transcripts and social media. That's right. And then, of course, our illustrator, Neil yep. Smith. Neil Smith, who does all of our podcast illustrations, including the terrifically scary toxopocalypse uh, that that you're seeing on this episode's illustration. Yep. Uh, and our audio mixer, Tal Ram. Yeah. And Lemmy, who is the creator of our song, Psychological. That's right. So um, anyone else? 
Uh, those are all of the brains that help make this podcast. So now if you want to help make this podcast, you can follow us and support us on uh, on Patreon. You can buy our merch. We have awesome t-shirts and amazing stickers with the zombified floating heads. That's right. So, <laughs> And if you want more of us and more of our friends and many of our guests who we've had and, on the show. And their brains. And their brains. You should totally check out Channel Z. Yes. We have an amazing um, meeting coming up. Also, the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine meeting, which is going to be live cast on Channel Z, which is our newest concept television in the apocalypse and um, you can find us and many of our awesome colleagues and their brains all on channel z so uh so yeah if you are interested in attending the whole meeting too you can register it's happening august 15th through 18th august all, no wait no october obviously <laughs> because yes. that has already has, passed yes. so <laughs> october october 15th through 18th um all online and um you can find more information about it at www.zombiemed.org that's right and if people are listening after october they can still check out channel z which has that's a right. lot of great content uh yeah that's at channelz.org. yeah so, um yeah great well thank you Everybody for listening to Zombified, yeah. your source for fresh brains. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you. Makes me act the way.